Hey, cashiers. We Have the Receipts podcast is coming at you live from Netflix is a Joke Fest in Los Angeles. Chris, are you kidding? No, Netflix is a joke, Courtney, but this is not one of them. Our listeners in LA have the chance to join us for a live recording of our podcast, We Have the Receipts, hosted by me, Chris Burns. And me, Courtney Revolution. Join us and a few surprise guests from your favorite Netflix reality shows on Saturday, May 4th at 1 p.m. at a secret location in Hollywood. To be announced. Get your tickets for the We Have the Receipts live show at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. That's todoom, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash We Have the Receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary series, Eat the Rich, the GameStop saga. There were so many little things that lined up. It almost felt like the perfect storm of events. Today, we're talking to executive producer Dan Kogan. Powerful Wall Street hedge funds made a financial bet. If video game retailer GameStop went bankrupt, they'd make a killing on its devalued stock. But no one could anticipate an army of online day traders would prop up GameStop and squeeze the overextended hedge funds that were short selling the company. It forced the price of the stock to jump from just under $10 to more than $400, making small money investors rich and nearly toppling the biggest brokerage firms in the country. But was someone breaking the law by mobilizing buyers on Reddit to make GameStop's value explode? And did Wall Street's most powerful players break the law by manipulating the technology to cool down the frenzy? Like, unless someone rescues you, you're out of business. Like, you're done. But here's the thing. If hedge funds go under, that could bring down the entire financial system. And I'm joined by executive producer Dan Kogan. Dan, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you so much for having me. What drew you to this story? Oh, boy. Well, you know, there are those stories that happen that are so big that you can't avoid them, that everyone is talking about. And so instantaneously, when we were watching this unfold in real time, we just thought it was such an extraordinary story as a combination of a story about money, a story about pop culture, a story about uh, conflict. And we could feel right from the beginning that there was something happening beneath what was happening on the surface that could be a story about how the world actually works that none of us really understand. And so that's what we set out to tell right from the beginning. I think so, too. I mean, I watched this unfold in real time. I'm a Redditor and a lurker in Wall Street bets. I've never actually made any financial decisions. You could work closely with Mikey Guggenheim then. 
Uh, maybe. <laughs> I don't know if I'd want to, but maybe. <laughs> um, I don't know. I was kind of one of those people watching the stock go up and wishing maybe I was a person who went in on some of these bets. But what about you? Were you watching the stock go up and, and wishing you'd got in on the action? I mean, who cannot feel that way? Like, that's an inevitable thought as it's happening. But, you know, as I watched it, I thought, this is out of control. And generally, when things are out of control, they're not going to end well. And it turned out that, you know, it ended well for some, it ended very badly for others. And those included people both on the, you know, Reddit sort of day trading retail trader side and also, you know, some of the big hedge funds like Melvin. So the pain was actually distributed in lots of different places. And it was, it was really interesting just to try and figure out how that worked after the fact. There's a bunch of terminology that's necessary to understand what happens in this film. Uh, did you think it would be a challenge explaining that terminology to a mainstream audience that needed to understand it in order to understand uh, this documentary? It's such a good question. And that was actually part of the super fun challenge of this show was like, how do we do that? How do we tell a story where a lot of the language folks might not know what it is? And um, that's something that I feel really proud about, that we were able to tell something that I think people, no matter what their knowledge or financial background is, can totally get the essence of the story. And um, that was one of the most fun things for us to do. And it's one of the reasons, by the way, that the story is so visual that we told it in the meme-driven way that we did because, you know, that's how the world experienced it. It's a meme stock story. And we turned those memes around to be able to express the essential meaning of it to folks who aren't financial professionals. It's also a story about internet culture, uh, Reddit culture in particular. What happened to GameStop was driven by this army of small investment day traders who like hung out on this Wall Street Bets subreddit. Can you just explain what life is like on that subreddit? I mean, Wall Street Best is just spectacular. And I have to say, like, it's really fun to do something that celebrates Reddit and Redditors because um, they are just a kick-ass force in the culture and they're keeping it real and they expose the world as it is. And so it was really fun to work with them to tell that story. And, you know, that Wall Street Bets subreddit is just insane. It's a combination of incredibly smart analysis and uh, incredibly uh, vile and funny language. And um, it's a really interesting culture mix. And it's a great world to tell a story in. I mean, that's Reddit, right? When the forces come together to do something, it can be incredibly powerful. It can be sometimes really awful, but also sometimes really like real world consequences, good or at least interesting. And I don't think people get that. And that's kind of one of the like points in this movie is that there's all these real world old school financial people who think like, you can only do it the way we do it. What are these internet people doing? And they seem doubly shocked because there's a real world impact that started in this forum, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, the Reddit folks, it's also important to say it's not just one kind of person. There are really sophisticated financial professionals who are there. There are day traders who are going about this from a sort of purely meme-driven way. It's a mix of all these different elements. And you see that in the show where you have someone like Alvin Chow, who's very sophisticated, or you have Roaring Kitty, you know, deep fucking value on Reddit, who's also uh, a sophisticated financial guy. And then you have everyday people and they're influencing each other. And that energy was really interesting to capture. Mm. 
I think you had one financial expert explain that even those day traders who are very savvy don't typically get rich because the amount of money they put into the market isn't going to hit the multiples they hope. So that's the major disadvantage of being a day trader, right? Well, statistically, if you just look at it statistically, day traders lose more money than they make as a group. Yeah. So any one person can have an, an awesome outcome. But, you know, as a group, it doesn't work well for day traders. And that is just a statistical fact. There's no getting around it. However, individual people will believe in their ability to do it. um, And, you know, often they can be right. Right. I mean, this is the story ultimately, though, about people who tried to and in some cases did beat the house. And it all started when all the big money was shorting GameStop, which is a brick and mortar store, for those of you who don't know, uh, for video games in an age where gamers just download their purchases, you know, through sites like Steam and so forth. So just remind us what happened to make GameStop suddenly this company everybody wanted to invest in. Okay. So, yes, as you said, GameStop was a brick-and-mortar company that seemed to be slowly dying. As malls died, um, GameStop died. And also, as people started buying their video games online and downloading them, you didn't need to go to a store. And so there were some long-term problems for GameStop based on the way it was running its business. Everyone thought GameStop was the next blockbuster. A lot of people thought... GameStop's overvalued. No one's going to these stores buying. They just thought the stock should go down. New game retailer GameStop is not doing so well. GameStop looks to be heading down the same path as Blockbuster and Sam Goody. Now, there were other people who realized two different things about the company. One was that people were shorting it, which means that they were betting that its stock was going to go down. Now, you can do that and you can make money, except that the short position, as it's called, was 140%. In other words, there was so much being bet on it to fail that if that reversed and all of a sudden those people who had bet on it to fail had to buy back the stock because it was going up and it was going to get more and more expensive for them, there wasn't enough stock for them to buy up, which means that there would be huge buying pressure and the stock would just keep going up and it would be a, a vicious circle. The other thing was that a guy named Ryan Cohen, who's a very successful investor, made public that he had bought, I believe, 9% of the company. When people saw that Ryan Cohen, who is this hero who had built a company that had beaten Amazon in the pet food business, you know. Chewy, they, right? Chewy, was his company? Um, yeah. When they saw that he was interested in GameStop, it was like these two things converging, which is one, oh my God, there are all these financial professionals who are betting on it to lose. And if we can bet on it to win, we can screw the hell out of them and destroy them. And two, wow, Ryan Cohen is going to turn this company around and make it successful. And if we own it, then we'll profit from that too. And he's a guy who screwed the big man before, you know, he beat Amazon um, in the pet food business. And so there was this sort of insurgent energy in two different directions. And those things coincided. And as soon as that Ryan Cohen position became public, the stock went nuts. Right. And in fact, the trading platform is named Robinhood did not uh, go by me, by the way, which is like another layer here. Um, totally. I think this I think the simplest thing that the viewer needs to remember is that while you can lose the full value of a stock if it goes down to zero, if you're short selling like the hedge funds were, there's no limit to the amount of money you can lose if the stock keeps going up and up. So how does the short squeeze of GameStop begin? Like, 
Yeah. What is that moment like when it just starts? Yeah. So um, let's talk about that a little bit more because it's important to, to folks to understand that concept. And it's actually really simple. It's just not something that people think about a lot. If you're shorting a stock, what you're doing is you're borrowing it from someone who owns it at a certain price. And um, so let's say that you uh, borrow it at $10. If you can then sell that at $8, you know, so believing that the stock is going to go down, if you're right and you can sell it at, say, $8 and you give it back to that person for $10, you've made $2. If you short, you want the stock to be going down, you need it to be going down. The opposite is a big problem for you, which is that if you get it at 10 and all of a sudden it goes up, remember, you have to buy that stock back to give it back to the person that you borrowed it from. So if it goes up to 20, then you've just lost $10. If it goes up to 30, you've lost 20. And so it's endless what you can lose if the stock keeps going up. So in that moment where the stock explodes at the end of January, and, um, and it's going up and up and up. All the short sellers are looking at it and saying, holy shit, like, how do I get out of this position? My potential losses are infinite. And that is the pressure point that is a real financial thing and also like a huge, fun cultural win for folks who wanted to attack the big guys. You know, one of those yeah. big guys uh, was a company called Melvin Capital, which is one of the most aggressive uh, short sellers on the stock. And in fact, yes, Melvin Capital was driven into bankruptcy by what happened with GameStop by the short squeeze. So it did work in that sense. It's a very cynical approach. I mean, it's, there's a, it's a very cynical approach to capitalism, right? The shorting of stocks. And I understand why people who are sort of like, against the man, uh, love the idea of taking stock shorters down. Like that makes sense well, to me. That's a, that's a very interesting question. And, I, and I'm not sure that I agree it necessarily is. Like there's a populist argument for short selling too. Uh, there's a really interesting character in the film, a guy named Andrew Leff, who runs something called Citron Research. Now, this is a guy who became a laughingstock and a target during this GameStop story because he was someone who defended all the short sellers. And so the folks on Reddit who just wanted the stock to go up and up and up hated him and made fun of him and they ordered pizzas to his house and they they signed him up for like Tinder, I think. And it was just like all really funny pranks and he became a hated figure. However, his history has actually been sussing out fraud and dishonesty and failure in the markets and making sure people knew about that. I would put stock information on the internet where people could read it that's not Wall Street information. Before Reddit, before Facebook, before MySpace, there was me. The irony of the whole GameStop story is that I got caught up on the side of what's considered Wall Street and historically I've been the anti-Wall Street person. I don't think it only has to be cynical. I don't think he approached it cynically. I think he approached it from, you know, in his career from a point of view of like, how do I get the truth out there? Now, hmm. it is true that there are others who are approaching shorting more cynically, which is like, yeah, this is a crappy company and they're going to fail. So let's make money on their way down. And hmm. um, I get that energy. And, you know, there are characters in the film also, Daniel and Diana Wilson, who are Redditors. And that's exactly how they felt. And my friend at the time was like, GameStop is really good stock because like, you know, they're a big World of Warcraft provider. I was a big World of Warcrafter. I was like addicted to it. I was like, okay, buy me some of those. So they were actually my first stocks that I bought. So it has sentimental value to me. 
They were like, we love GameStop. We love videos. We're big into World of Warcraft. Like, fuck these people who are trying to destroy this great company. But I don't think that's the only way to look at it. And that's part of why the show is so interesting is that there are these different perspectives that's once you dig deep into it, end up being really surprising. Yeah. So regulators worry about market manipulation, and there's some question as to whether crowdsourcing, uh, the buying frenzy counts as manipulating the market. What do you think? It's such an interesting question. So yeah, like that's the that's the roaring kitty Keith Gill part of it, you know, and that's this character in the film who is doing his own blogging about how awesome he thinks GameStop can really be. The GameStop thesis is super simple, but it's often misunderstood. Everyone classifies it as a cigar butt and then just moves on. To add to this, GameStop is by far the most heavily shorted company in the market. So this has led to an opportunity. That That's that's what I think. You know, no one knew this at the time. He just went by the name Roaring Kitty. No one knew his real name. No one knew his past. Um, he was just doing these vlogs. What actually ended up happening was that he was a former financial professional. And so they, there was, there were lawsuits against him saying that he manipulated the market. But I, I didn't buy that. I mean, at the end of the day, he is being completely transparent. He's saying, I believe in the stock and here are the factual reasons I believe in the stock. And he's putting that out there. I don't see anything wrong with that. And the end of the day, that suit was dismissed against him. Mm. You know, it's not like he was lying. It's not like he was saying, I believe in the stock and here are the reasons why. And he had made them up. And it's, he, it's also not like he was saying, I believe in the stock, and he didn't. He was actually just looking to pump and dump. He actually totally believed in what he was doing, and he was trying to educate people. He's, he's just an internet version of Jim Cramer. You know, That's from, what I was going to ask you, money. yeah. And so like, yeah. I don't see any difference, and I think thankfully the courts didn't either, and they totally dismissed that suit against him. Yeah, I've always wondered that because you do open with Jim Cramer saying he like rushed out of his hospital bed, you know, to break into, you know, CNBC programming to raise this alarm. What the hell is GameStop doing? That's like a $20 stock and it's in 400. Give me the give me the phone. I asked for the control room. Here's the deal, guys. There isn't anyone who was involved with GameStop who would accept the fact that this company should be at 338. He is a serious influencer in how many Americans feel about the stock market and they make decisions based on what he does, like with his air horn and stuff. And like, why is a TV influencer okay, but not a Reddit influencer, right? Totally. Totally. So I want to pivot to the style of this documentary. Um, you've been an executive producer on documentaries like Alan versus Pharaoh, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, Children of the Underground, uh, some heavy stories, sometimes bleak stories. Eat the Rich has a very different feel than those stories. Um, tell me about going there. Why, why did you want to make such a big change? This is my favorite thing about the show. And this is what I think Theo Love, the director, and our team did so well is like, how do you tell a story that is both deadly serious about the way financial markets and therefore our world work and at the same time is totally bananas and nutty and has so many goofy and silly elements to it? Like, you know, people being pissed at Jim Cramer, so cutting his face out and putting it on the butt of a dog and having it sing. <laughs> to me, like, that's the most interesting challenge there is, is like, how do you tell an important story that's also a ridiculous story? So the way that we we went about doing it was to embrace the humor, embrace the silliness, but also use that as ways to 
uh, get people to listen to the more serious parts of the story. And when you're laughing, you know, you're taking in information and you're having fun at the same time. And so our goal was like, how much can we have people laugh and how much fun can we have people have while they're actually learning about the financial markets? I imagine this creative room, right? There's all this clever stock photography. Uh, when you talk about a squeeze, there's this quick cut of a car and a trash compactor. Someone says the answer to a question is yes. And there's like a dolphin nodding, all these rapid visuals. Like, did you just search a keyword like moonshot and like just grab any crazy clip you could find? Like, what was that process like of putting these things together? It was the it was the editors and the assistant editors just going to town like yeah. <laughs> they, they just had so much fun scouring the Internet, scouring um, archives, thinking up creative ways to visually express something, because if you're not having fun, you're not experiencing the GameStop story. Like, you know, all those people, all those Redditors were having a blast as the story was happening. And um, you want that energy in the show. Like it's, it's, it's not a good show if it's not as fun as the, as the event was itself. It reminds me when people throw up a tweet and they say, gifts only to answer a question, <laughs> right? <laughs> totally. That was our policy. Well said. <laughs> Some of the more colorful investors are rapper Mikey Guggenheim and his friends Rachel and Eric with a D, Derek. I'm on Reddit, but not even remotely in the same way. I'm a lurker, for sure. In real life, too. <laughs> I've, I'm like, re I'm regular. Stop it. Like outside bushes and shit, you know what I mean? No, I don't I don't lurk in real life. Exactly what a lurker like would say. explain that I'm not a lurker all the time. Can you stop? Not that many people are going to see this. They cut up on each other and then do this very earnest uh, rap about GameStop, which ends with them dropping their pants so we can see that they have the GameStop stock symbol painted on their butts. I like the stock. I like the stock. I like the stock. I just did a 900 like I'm Tony Hawk. Go Actually, I'm talking about how many shares I bought. I got the cost average in waiting for a price drop. I did pay for a what was the reaction back at the studio when people saw this footage? I like the stock. So we didn't know that that's what they were doing. Like you can see <laughs> in the footage, they were like, okay, yeah, we're going to do this rap, but is it okay if we stand? Because they had been sitting down on a couch in front of their monitors as we were shooting them. And so the director was like, yeah, man, cool, whatever you want to do. And then there they go. And there are their butts. So, um, you know, we love that. That's the kind of, that's the kind of magic you want, which is real people doing their real thing and surprising the hell out of you. And that's what makes the show so fun. But these goofballs, they made a lot of money in the stock market, right? Um, they did. Uh, they made 10x their initial investment. But, you know, Mikey was was looking at um, Wall Street Bets for years. And so I think he was in it right at the beginning. He wasn't a guy who was like, oh, shit, I just read about this, you know, uh, in, on, on, on the paper or on Facebook. And like, now I'm going to jump in. He was He was thinking about it from the very beginning. And I think that helped him. But there were also some more conventional traders here, too. People like Eddie Koo, uh, people you wouldn't call desperate, but a windfall would make a big difference in their lives. Right. And it totally worked for him, you know, yeah. and like he was another guy who was looking into Wall Street bets because, um, you know, his wife was laid off because of the pandemic. A lot of thoughts crossed my mind. Um, do I have to take a second job? Do I have to bartend on the weekends or be an Uber driver? But with two young kids, I want to be there for them be a good parent, right? Let's watch it over here. We had to figure out what we were going to do. And he was like, why don't I just try doing something uh, in the stock market? And he got really into Wall Street bets and he got in early enough that it worked. 
there are also tons of people who got in after the initial noise and after the stock had gone up really high, and it did not work out so well for many of them. So what happens to the stability of the stock market when one stock shoots from under $10 to more than $400? Well, the question becomes, is that going to have drastic consequences for the loser there? And in that case, the losers at that moment, they are not the retail uh, traders, but they are the hedge funds who are getting shorted. And it's Robinhood itself, which has to be able to cover all of those buys. And so that's when you get into the situation, the crazy situation of the stock is going to the moon, as they say, and then all of a sudden they shut down the buy button, which means all you can do is sell, which is like literally mathematically all that can be possible is for the stock to drop. Uh, we're seeing reports that Robinhood is restricting purchases of some of these stocks, including GameStop. Robinhood got rid of the buy button. Like you couldn't buy it. You could sell it but you couldn't buy it. And everybody's like, what's going on? And that is, to me, the most dramatic moment in the story. And it changes everything. And it's because uh, it seems they as a platform did not have their shit together to handle the very kind of volatility and buying and consumer excitement that they were trying to create. Like you have to remember the whole thing about Robinhood is like, how can we make stock trading as fun as playing a game on your phone? And Mm. so they went out of their way to do that, to engineer it so that it felt like a game, so it was enjoyable, so it was like a pop experience. And yet all of that promotion of using that platform, when people started using it in in this extreme form, they weren't ready to handle it. You know, one of the mysteries as to, you know, why Robin had disabled the button. I mean, there's, you know, there's different sort of accountings as to why they may have done so in in your documentary. Um, but there's a question as to whether or not that move was also potentially a form of market manipulation. Um, do you have an opinion about that? I mean, I don't have an opinion. Um, the facts on that one seem to be unclear. What's interesting, this contradiction that's interesting about this story is that Robinhood was supposed to be the company that supported the little guys, right? They're called Robinhood after all. But the truth is, and this is what you learn watching the story, they don't make their money by enabling little guys to buy stock. It's the little guys don't pay them and they don't make their money based on the little guys profiting, Day traders being successful is not how they get paid. They get paid by the fact that when you buy a stock there, they send that order to a giant company called Citadel, who happens to also have a hedge fund that was a big investor in um, another hedge fund that was shorting GameStop. So you, you mm-hmm. have this entity, Citadel, who's making money based on all of the activity on Robinhood, and yet Citadel is also losing money because of their connection to a hedge fund who is shorting GameStop. So there's this interesting contradiction at the heart of all of it. And, um, you know, from what I understand on the legal side, the courts have looked at it and said, well, there was no collusion there, but it's an interesting contradiction in the system. So someone has to take sort of the public fall for all the chaos. And that person ends up being Keith Gill, who was known as Roaring Kitty on social media. And he was also on Reddit, as you said, with the handle Deep Fucking Value. Um, He wasn't really a day trader, as it turns out. He'd been this professional analyst at Mass Mutual. If there were no Roaring Kitty, would all of this have happened, do you think? It's a really good question. I mean, I think he had an important role for sure. I think he was a true believer 
That's my own opinion. And so I don't think he was doing it cynically. He had an important role. But remember, he was talking about how awesome GameStop was and how big its potential was for months and months and months and nothing happened. And it wasn't until Ryan Cohen jumped in that all of a sudden that ignited it. And then halfway through that ignition, it's like a rocket booster. It's like the initial booster drops off and then it goes and then there's another boost. And that came from Elon Musk tweeting one word. And then Elon tweets out game stomp. And then it went totally nuts even more after that. So I don't think you need attribute it all to Keith Gill, but he certainly had a really important early role. One manager told you the people who got hurt were the pension funds and other retirement instruments. Who are the investors? Pension funds, teachers unions. You know, hospital endowments, university endowments, foundations, not-for-profits. So I think a lot of the negative sentiment against hedge fund managers, I'm not sure it fully appreciates what we do. Are they supposed to be investing pension money into something as risky as GameStop? Here's the thing about the pension funds. The pension funds aren't buying GameStop. The pension funds are investors in companies like Melvin Capital and Citadel, who are giant hedge funds. And this is one of the ironies and contradictions that makes the story so interesting is that, yes, there was this David and Goliath energy where it's like the big hedge funds are trying to destroy this company we love, GameStop, and we're going to fight back and we're going to bankrupt them in the purpose and we're going to take all their money and make it ourselves. That's part of the energy. And that was what a lot of folks felt at the same time. Who really is behind Citadel? Like, yes, you have a CEO who's like making a lot of money and owns the most expensive home in America and et cetera. But a lot of the customers are things like pension funds. They are the same people that are everyday folks who are day trading. So the idea that there is this complete uh, separation between the day traders and the giant hedge funds is not actually true. It's much more complicated than that. And also on the day trading side, there are financial professionals like Keith Gill. So the story actually becomes a lot muddier. And it is this idea of like, ultimately, how can you beat the house? And like, even as all the day traders were making money off of the short squeeze, who is making money off of them doing that? Citadel. Because Citadel is making money off of every single trade that happens on Robinhood uh, because of the relationship between the two companies. So it's actually like, can you really beat the house? And it's sort of like, well, you can kind of beat the house in a small way, but you can never totally beat them because the very tools you use to beat them are tools they profit off of. And that, to me, is a really important story about the American economy and how it works. Like a lot of the energy behind the day traders was like, fuck these giant institutions who made so much money off of 2008. You know, they screwed up the economy. They blew it. And yet all of us were the people who lost our jobs and now our mortgages are underwater. And that is all true. And a lot of people didn't recover personally the way that these big institutions did that caused all the problems. So it's totally unjust. And that's right. But the thing is that those organizations control the game. They literally control the machinery, the piping through which all of the things that happen in the financial markets flow. So even if you're going to play in the financial markets, those people are going to make money off you, even if you beat them on some small things. You may, you may win the battles, but they're going to win the war. And that's an important lesson for all of us because it's like, how do you make that system? 
more just? How can it be that it's not just the big guys who profit by the everyday functioning of the machine, but it's it's regular folks that do too? And to me, that's like a political question. That's a policy question. And that's the kind of question that I hope this show can inspire people to ask. And that's why I love this show so much because it's fun. It's bananas. You have a laugh doing it. But hopefully you get at some really powerful and important truths, which is that the system is rigged and we need to change that if we want to have justice. Hmm. We're all just stuck in the Citadel Matrix, it sounds like, right? It's kind of that way, yes. Hmm. Dan Kogan, the documentary is Eat the Rich. Uh, The series is fantastic. I loved watching it, and I couldn't wait to see it when I heard what it was about, and I'm sure that everyone else who watched it felt the same way. Thank you so much for talking to me about it. Thank you for the time. Thank you for the awesome questions, and it's a treat just to think about people actually watching the show and having the blast that I know they're going to. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to executive producer Dan Kogan. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review the show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your audio. And make sure to subscribe to the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up as a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.